At this time, I invite you to turn in your Bibles, not to 2 Corinthians 9, that was Carrie's sermon, that's not mine, but to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. You will find it on page 1,877 in your pew Bibles. Page 1,877. And if I'm off by a couple pages, I do apologize, but I think that's what it is. We're going to begin reading at verse 14, and we're going to continue through uh, the end of the chapter, verse 29. We'll start at verse 14, we'll read through the end of the chapter, which is verse 29. Hear now the word of the Lord that we will contemplate this morning. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and to defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit his blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind though he sought the blessing with tears. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks better, a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The word once more indicate the removing of that which can be shaken. That is, created things. So that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken... Let us be thankful, and so worship God acceptably, with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray that the Lord would bless this word to our hearing this morning. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come before you this morning asking for your blessing as we have heard your word read aloud. Lord, we pray that you be with your servant as the meditation is spoken. May your, truth may, be, may your truth be spoken through it. May it engage our minds. May it change our hearts that we may be thankful, ready, and willing to live for you when we go from this place. All this is not asked for in our own strength, but in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, through the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. This we ask in their name and in their power. Amen. We're going to focus on the latter half of the passage we read this morning. 
But brothers and sisters, beloved in Christ, when I got the call this morning about, by the way, you need to come up with a sermon, I thought about Thanksgiving. How do I preach a Thanksgiving sermon? And what does it mean to be thankful on Thanksgiving? Too often we hear many times, Christians, be thankful. Be thankful for what you have. How many times do we hear, well, you know, you could have been born in Africa. Be thankful for what's on your plate. I'm sure the starving kids in Africa would rather eat your beans than have nothing. We read stories about what it means to be thankful or what we're called to be thankful. Originally, my passage was this one or 2 Corinthians 9, and I realized that Pastor Kerry was going to preach 2 Corinthians 9, and I'll let him preach that thankfulness later. But it's not just these two passages, it's many passages that speak about be thankful to God. This morning we read from Psalm 100, be thankful to the Lord. Psalm 136, his love endures forever. Give thanks to God, for he is the God of gods, the Lord of lords. He is the one that created the world. He is the one that planned out the plan of salvation and has included us in it. He brought his people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He led them through the desert. He set them up as a nation, a city on a hill. He gave them prophets to speak to them. He allowed them to write the word down. And then in due time, his son came. The greatest gift of all. God in flesh incarnate to pay for our sins for yours and for mine to teach disciples to establish a church throughout history as we've been learning in the class after in uh, adult Sunday school the history of the church and its debates that we stand on the shoulders of theological giants and we realize who Christ is and have a greater appreciation of the work and who he was. And it leads us all to here. November 25, 2021. Where we get to meet together as a body of believers, a church, Cottage Grove, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our passage this morning, the writer of Hebrews, and Hebrews has long been considered a, a, a sermon that has been written out, the beautiful flowing narrative. And yet, the writer of Hebrews, when he brings this logical understanding through as to what it means to be the people of God, and what it means for the people of the Hebrews, to understand what God has done for them, he hearkens back to their history. In our passage this morning, specifically verse 18 and on, he specifically invokes visuals of Exodus 20. Right before the law is given, right before we hear the Decalogue for the first time, In Exodus 20, the people are told to 
Come to the mountain, but do not touch it. For if a camel or a donkey or any animal should touch it, it should be stoned. And a word came out from the top of the mountain where it was dark and there was a storm burning with fire and a light. And the people begged not to hear any more. How can holiness ever stand in the or how can unholiness, uncleanliness, ever stand in the path, in the status, even in the same area as a holy God? The holiness of God is so great, so wonderful, so amazing, that when we see the history of the Israelites in Exodus chapter 20, We see that the people of God were overcome with fear. In fact, they never really got to go to the presence of God. You can say, but Elder Dykstra, what are you talking about? They had the the cloud, the pillar of cloud and the, the pillar of fire and you know, they were they were able to to hear from Moses and they heard the word of God from the mountain and what, they had the, the tabernacle and the temple. Exactly. They had the tabernacle and the temple. The tabernacle and the temple were always set up to be barriers. Representational, but yes, also barriers. When you think about the construction of both the temple and the tabernacle, you have the ark, which is the presence of God, the mercy seat, and it sits in the Holy of Holies, a perfect cube. But it's separated from everything else by a veil, four to eight inches thick in places, beautifully emblazoned with purple and gold, with pictures of pomegranates and trees, a symbol of the Garden of Eden where God and man first had communion. But it separates the Holy of Holies from the holy place. A place where the priests would minister. The table of shewbread, the lights, the the candelabras that were in the temple. You had the altar of incense. All of these beautiful, worshipful, holy things. But even that was separated from the outside, where you had the courts. You had the court of the Israelites, and you had the court of the people. You had only Jews that could be in close contact to the temple. You had the sea, if you remember, the bronze sea, and the altar where sacrifices were offered. But none of this was actually in the presence of God. Because if you are in the presence of a holy God, no one could stand. Nadab and Abihu found that out when they offered unholy fire. In fact, Jewish tradition teaches us, even in Scripture in Leviticus, 
the once a year the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. But in order to do that, what they would do is they would put on the linen ephod, washed, and then tie a rope around his ankle. Because if the Lord found him not holy enough, he would be struck dead. The bells on his garments would go silent. And this way they could pull the body out. A mountain burning with fire, darkness, storm, the authority of God, the fear of the Lord. And yet it's that very same God that we come into this morning, don't, isn't it? We come into the presence of God to worship. We are through his spiritual capability transported to the holy place. When we pray, we pray coming before the Lord and his throne. We are not just invited to a mountain that we can't touch. We're not just invited to a temple that keeps us out on the outside. Instead, we are brought into a church. And spiritually into a heavenly Jerusalem. And one day the spiritual will be physical. And coming down from heaven will be the new heavens and new earth. That's the promise that the writer of Hebrews gives us. We don't have to be worried about all the barriers. We don't have to be worried about bringing the right sacrifice. We don't have to worry about being in the right place or doing the right thing or kneeling in the right spot or praying the right prayers or saying the right words. Instead, we are called to come. We are called to be humble. We are called to come into the presence of thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. What does it mean to worship God? At the core, it's to be thankful for what He's done, for the gifts He's given, for the mercy He's extended. And how much more so should we than the people of Israel? The people of Israel were were instructed to bring thank offerings. They were instructed to bring grain offerings. They were instructed to bring sin offerings. And they would do so with regularity. What are our thank offerings today? What are our grain offerings today? People of God, who is our sin offering today? It's none other than Jesus Christ himself. We don't have to provide for that. We don't have to pay that penalty. We don't have to bring all the condemnation upon us and then lay our hands on a little lamb 
and say, here is the symbol of my sin being transferred to an animal and then have that animal completely destroyed as if it were taking the penalty for us. Instead, we come to God who is the judge of all men. And instead of hearing the righteous declaration of guilty, we hear the gracious declaration of paid in my son. And it's not just me. It's not just you. It's not just scatterings of little people here and there. But notice what verse 23 says. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. How great a cloud of witnesses. We will read later on. You see the multitude that sings. I'm I'm constantly bombarded now in my mind with that beautiful song by the Sea of Crystal. Saints in glory stand. Myriads in number drawn from every land. Robed in white apparel, washed in Jesus' blood. That beautiful picture of the salvation of God. Not just for a few, not just to a few individual people that have held the law, that have been able to keep hands clean. Not just people that have walked the straight and narrow, that have never fallen to the left and the right. Because that's not who God calls. God calls sinners. Broken men and women like us. That's the gracious gift of God. We're brought to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. In verse 24, I always... When I was originally studying this passage, I was always confused by this. I remember growing up, what does it mean, Jesus the mediator of a new covenant into the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel? Abel was the son of Adam and Eve. Innocent. And yet murdered by his brother. Offered sacrifices, lived righteously. Not a bad word is said about him in Scripture. But Jesus' blood is greater than the blood of Abel. Because the blood of Abel can't pay for Abel. The blood of Abel can't pay for you and for me. Just because an innocent man dies doesn't mean that we somehow now have salvation through that. Because Abel was just a man. In our adult Sunday school, we talked about the Christological controversies. And that Christ, if he was just a man, well, he couldn't have followed the law perfectly. He wouldn't have been able to be a mediator. 
to be the one that brings us together with God. If he's just a man, then there's no possible way he could be Savior. But if he's just God, then how could just God pay for the sins of mankind? That's not just. That's not righteous. The penalty still must be paid, and it must be paid in kind. And so Jesus Christ must be God and must also be man. As we learn from the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Chalcedon and the debates that went on, we read from Scripture, the sprinkled blood of Christ purifies that which it touches. And it purifies you and me. Finally, what is the last gift we are given? Verse 28 specifically says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. Just before that, we hear about God's voice shakes the earth. When Christ dies on Golgotha, The earth splits. The world shakes. And there is a time coming where God will shake both heaven and earth. That which is shaken is that which can be removed. That which is shaken is not that which has a firm foundation. Rather, it can all fall away. It is impermanent. It is temporary. But the last gift that we see in our passage, the gift that God gives us through His Son, through the, through the blood, through the payment, is that we have an inheritance of a kingdom that is permanent. As Paul would say in first, and later in the Corinthians, he would say that we have a house not made with human hands, eternal in the heavens. You see, that which is shaken, that which will fall away, that's what's not given to us. But rather, we are in the inheritance, we are the sons and daughters that will receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. A house that is firmly built upon Christ. So finally, what does this, what does this do for us? What is the benefits for us? What is the blessing that is to be given Just because we've been given these gifts, do we just sit there and go, oh, it's as if you're sitting there on Christmas morning and you're given a box and you're just looking at the wrapping paper. You don't read the book that's inside or play with the toy that's inside or 
enjoy and appreciate the gift that's been given. Generally, what's the first thing we do when, we're begin, when we've been given a gift? Thank you. We show appreciation. And so how are we to show appreciation? Verse 28. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Because we've been brought near into the presence of God, because we now have a great high priest who sympathizes with us, whose blood is better than the blood of Abel, because we have the greatest gift of all and the gifts and the promises of the permanence of the kingdom that we will reign over in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth. We worship God. That is the foundation of our worship. And we're not to do so frivolously. We're not to do so the way we feel like it or the way our culture dictates that you know, we should show appreciation. But instead, we do so with reverence. We do so with awe. Because our worship is not about us. Our worship is not about how you and I feel good after we leave a service. Our worship is not about, well, you know, our worship really brought us together as people. If the worship brings you together as people, if the worship puts a smile on your face, if the worship is what makes you feel all lovey-dovey afterwards, but is not talking about God, and is not true worship of our saving God, what are you really worshiping? No, instead we're called to worship with reverence and awe. Because the God of the mountain that had darkness and fire and storm is still the God that gave us Christ, the Lamb that was slain for the world. And it is the fear of God that should drive what our worship is and should be. So as we go from this place this morning, what is our act of worship? Let us do so with reverence and with awe in the fear of the Lord. Let us pray. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, we come into your presence You who are an all-consuming fire. You who are our King of kings and Lord of lords. Who at the end of time rides forth on a white stallion with sword in hand. Crushing and proclaiming victory over your foes. But Lord, we also know that you are our good shepherd. That leads and guides by still waters and green pastures. And Lord, for both of those, we thank you. Thank you for your providential hand that sustains. Thank you for your gracious love that saves. Thank you for your mercy that holds us. And thank you for your power 
where the fear of the Lord keeps us on the right, the straight, and the narrow. Lord, may we worship you with reverence and awe. This we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.